This call is from a correction facility and is subject to monitoring and recording. I've been in here for, I can tell you exactly, 11,945 days, okay? 11,945 days I've been in here, you know? And um, it hasn't been easy. A <laughs> hundred years? That's man, I'm a kid. I didn't do anything, you know? And, uh, you know, that was uh, that was real painful, man. You know, because... My life was discarded as if, you know, like I was a piece of trash or something. You know, a hundred years, and I had dreams, and I wanted to do things. I wasn't committing crimes, you know? I was a very good young man. That is what happens in so many cases. The cops have a hunch because they're so smart at the scene. They have a hunch. And once they act on that hunch, they sort of develop tunnel vision and they take off marching in the wrong direction. And that happens in so many of these wrongful convictions. They opened the, the, uh, the cell door and I walked downstairs and I actually walked downstairs to, to be outside. It felt very strange um, to be, like I said, to be walking without no shackles on my feet. I thought it was a dream, but then again, it wasn't a dream. This is wrongful conviction. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. Today's guest is Harold House, and that's particularly exciting to me because not only does it mark the first time that we've had an actual movie star, TV star, who also was wrongfully convicted on the show, but Harold and I have become friends over the last several months, so I'm really excited to have you here. So, Harold, welcome to Wrongful Conviction. Uh, thank you for having me. And like I always say, I'm happy you're here, but I'm sorry you're here. Before we start, man, it's just a... Uh really say how much it, it means to have people like yourself that care. You know, so I'm, I'm really grateful for this opportunity and this platform to speak out about my situation. Yeah, and this is the first time that you're speaking out publicly about this, This right? would be my absolute first time ever speaking out about anything regarding to my case publicly. I mean, you were more likely to win a damn Oscar or Emmy or something than you were to end up in prison. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the time that this all came down. And talk about that, because your acting career was taking off before mm-hmm. this happened, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's which is why it must have been such a shock to so many people, everyone that knows you. And not only that, but you're a highly educated guy, mm-hmm. more so than myself, by far. And, and you're a person of faith and, and everything else. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that you couldn't have done something wrong, mm-hmm. but it makes it more, it should have been harder for a jury to believe mm-hmm. But, but anyway, we're going to get into that. It's okay. surreal. But what? But talk about that for a minute. So your career was taken off. What were mm-hmm. you doing professionally at the time? <laughs> well, the, the, I was in a, a great place career-wise. I felt like I had, you know, kind of got to the point where my career was taken off. You know how they say you become an overnight success, but this was the culmination of all the hard work. I was promoting my first lead debut film in Secrets at the time. We had a multiple city tour. I had just shot the Golden Globe Emmy-nominated show Atlanta. Um, where I was guaranteed a Seasons 2 series regular. We had just wrapped the Tupac movie. I had played Dr. Dre in that. You know, a ton of offers were coming in for various projects, film projects. And uh, it it was a good time, man. It was a time where all the work was really starting to pay off. I mean, you were living a dream that uh, millions of everyday Americans have and so many people try. So the effects, I mean, of having that rug pulled out from under you, uh, you had a long way to fall. And, well, I'm not going to put words out. I'm going to let you tell the story. I was accused of rape at the time by my 15-year-old stepdaughter. Yes. 
Right. What people think when they hear that word, mm -hmm. people are thinking, wait, whoa, what? Mm -hmm. you know, but in this situation, you were set up. It felt like a setup um, to some well, extent. At the time, uh, me and my son, mother was going through kind of a mild separation because of disciplinary issues I was having at the time with my stepdaughter. Um, it was one incident prior to where I had to kind of like discipline her for like cussing at me and being, you know, very, you know, belligerent and stuff like that. And um, so she went to her father's house. And even when the incident happened, I called him and said she was cussing, being extremely, you know, belligerent, volatile and physical and stuff like that. And it was more a comment like, you know, who you talking to? Why you being disrespectful type thing? And that's kind of where all of it started to where, you know, he had at that time went to the police and said I was beating her and choking her and throwing her and all these, you know, crazy accusations, all this conduct, physical conduct, me biting her on the neck. And it was actually a police report where they took the young lady away from her father. And she admitted that, you know, she had been talking back and that she had got in trouble and that she had called her father to come and get her because she knew she was going to be on punishment. And that uh, the officer in the police report said, I took her away from her father and told her that lying was against the law and I was here to help. And the only way I can do that is if you be honest. And she said, like I said, I knew I was going to be in trouble. And then she said, I asked her, has she had any other further issues with more at the time? So this is a report from the Gwinnett County Police Department. Mm -hmm says, at the conclusion of the interview, I asked the victim multiple times if there were any other problems she might be having with Moore, meaning you, mm -hmm. Harold House Moore. She never mentioned Moore touching her in an appropriate manner or that he had been biting her on the neck. So that would directly contradict the allegation from the father. Who The reason why, going to the setup, he made all these false accusations against me. I guess the separators, I don't know what his ultimate agenda was, but I guess for us to separate or be back with my son's mom. I don't know, or just envy. But all the, the charges, the accusations of this physicality, this sexual stuff, all started from her father. It's a very devastating accusation. Mm -hmm. And we know that once those meals are set in motion, mm -hmm. it's sometimes hard to put them back on the you know, or the car or the train because people get caught up in these lies mm -hmm. and then they don't know when to stop. Mm -hmm. And it becomes a very real problem. I, I think in my case where it wasn't just a lie, it was the fact that as a child, you wouldn't want your father to appear as a liar. And maybe she feared because he had a, a criminal history. You know, he had been in prison multiple times. He was known for doing illegal stuff. So I don't know if she felt because at the point they told her, like, lying is against the law. So now if you go back and tell the truth, your father's a liar. And at the same time, he was constantly rewarding her with financial stuff, you know, from purses to cars. I mean, I believe before it took us three and a half years to go to trial. I think she had four new vehicles before we went to trial. I mean, cars that was newer than mine and I was on television. And your case is um, terrifying because it's something that could have happened to anybody. And that's why I think it's so important that you're here. Well, let's go back to that. So my story real quick in a nutshell was that, you know, we had like a incident, the early incident I told you about cussing and talking back. That was in February. So between February and all the way to November, we barely had any interaction when I would come home and see my child. Like we would speak like, hey, we was always cordial and respectful. But there was kind of like some like hidden tension. So on Thanksgiving, her mom was like, hey, you should come here for Thanksgiving, not, you know, not be alone for Thanksgiving in California. 
I was like, no, I'm cool. I'm going to just stay. She's like, look, come and spend time with your son. You know, she's doing good. Her attitude's changed. Her demeanor's changed. You know, she's helping out with our son. She's doing better at school, blah, 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 blah. So I'm like, all right, boom. I get on the plane, fly in that day. On the night that she made the accusation was the night that I took her and her sisters to the movies. So after returning from the movies, they remained downstairs. The two girls next door that were twins that went to the movies with her sister while my stepdaughter went with her boyfriend. So after returning to the house, I left them all downstairs talking, having girl talk or what have you. And I went upstairs and I actually like dozed off in my son's room. Um, I had played golf that day, so I ended up waking up around about 2 o'clock in the morning because I still had my golf clothes on from earlier. So at that time, I went to go use the bathroom that my son shared with his sisters. 2 in the morning, my stepdaughter was on the phone. And even at that point then, I said, hey, it's kind of late, and just left it at that. So I goes downstairs to get ready to get in the shower in the master bedroom. Come back upstairs, I'm getting some of my clothes that was in my son's room because, like I said, me and the mom had separated and uh, so I would like sleep upstairs with my son in his room. The way it's set up is just like, this was her room, bathroom, her sister's room. You can touch all, everybody's rooms right here. You can touch everything. And uh, when I came back upstairs, I heard her still on the phone. So I, I yelled in the hallway like, hey, it's getting late. You need to get off the phone. And even in court, she said he was calling my name. I just ignored him. So uh, I walk in the room, calling her name. She's not answering. So I taps the bottom of her leg because she's fully covered under the cover like fully covered she had the blankets on her right so you touch her on top of the blanket like hey like kind of hey like you would do to make somebody up mm -hmm. so you literally touched a blanket that was covering her leg it was and it was like near the shin or the ankle it wasn't she said i like rubbed on the inside of her thigh that was in a police report and then the court she says something totally different so all of it was constantly contradicting each other so i'm like you know calling her name and she doesn't respond so i tap her look i said hey you know, I say her name, take a step toward her head of the bed where she was at. She turns and she's on the phone and the phone says love like two hours, 15, 20 minutes. So I'm like, hey, man, it's getting late. You need to get off the phone. She's like, uh, OK, walk out the room. And then, too, when I walked out the room, I text her and I had the text to prove she responded. I said, yo, night owl is getting late. You need to get off the phone. And she responded, OK. Next thing you know, the neighbor come knocking on the door. She screams her name. She just runs out the house. She never looks at me, never says nothing. So I goes and tell her mom, like, hey, you need to go check on her. She just, you know, ran out the house. She's on the phone with her boyfriend. I think he dumped her or she might be pregnant. I told her mom, it's like she had been kind of been busy. And, you know, we knew that she was, you know, maybe sneaking around doing little sneaky stuff. So my initial thought process was like, she pregnant. And so when I went and got her mom, her mom goes next door. I'm laying in the bed with my son, so like 15 minutes go by, and I look outside, I see like a whole lot of police cars. So I'm like, oh, what done happened? So I get dressed, get my son dressed, I go next door. I knock on the door, the police come, like, who are you? I say, my name is House, I'm coming to check on my family, they just came over here, I'm trying to see what's going on, you know, is everything okay? At this point, I don't know, who was it, the girls next door had something happen, something happened anywhere. They was like, oh, we need to talk to you. So I was like, talk to me for what? I'm trying to find answers just like y'all. They was like, well, can we talk to you next door? And I was like, I don't. You, what can you talk to me about? I don't know. I'm trying to figure out what's going on. And so they came to the house, and they was like looking around. And he was like, what happened tonight, sir? And I was like, what happened when? What are you talking about? And I felt like, like why are you questioning me about what happened about tonight or whatever? And so eventually he ended up saying what she said, call the police. House just tried to rape me. So at that point, I... I snapped. I was like, yo, man, go get her. Go get her mom. I'm not about to do this shit. Go get all of them. Blah, 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 blah. Then my son, mom comes walking in with a police with her. 
I was like, what's going on with? And she was like, I don't know. I don't know. I was like, see, this is that shit. This is why I don't want to come here. Like, I don't have time for the drama. Because when I separated, when we started separating in February, I was like, I don't have time to be interacting. I got too much going on to be interacting with, you know, your daughter and your ex-husband in drama. You see what I'm saying? So my whole reason for even going back to California when we separated was to avoid the drama. You see what I'm saying? So it's like, how do I get back in this shit when I'm trying to avoid drama? So anyway, long story short, my initial charge, they said I tried to rape her because I tapped her on her leg. Like, where you can do a DNA test. Like, where where is any physical? Then the thing that made me frustrated was because you see this girl. You don't see nothing physically done to her. You don't see none, no physical mark. Like, what in your mind makes you think that I should try to rape her? You can look at her. And then another thing, that, and I'm going to just wrap it up, was that she said I tried to rape her. I wasn't charged with rape. So it's like, how, did, how was I not charged with rape? So then in Georgia, they have this thing where if you touch somebody with the attempt to arouse yourself. I'm like, what? how did I get aroused from touching her leg? Where's an arousal? Where's where the indication that you was aroused? And they was like, oh, did he say something? To, no, I didn't say nothing to you remotely close to anything sexual, so where? But in Georgia, that's why I feel like it was a setup because you didn't even charge me with what she lied with. You put in charge me with something you can get me convicted on. There was never an investigation for rape. Anytime a minor makes any type of outcry, some type of rape, even if she recanted legally, you're supposed to report that to the child authorities, which never happened. You're supposed to do a DNA test, which never happens. So the thing would be for you guys to do the test. But they never did the test because at the time she was sleeping with her 18-year-old boyfriend, which is statutory rape. She was 14. She was 15. Oh. But her boyfriend was 18 at the time. Who's who you see in this picture. So even if she would have said this and took it back, who's to say she's not lying out of fear? And even during trial, that's what I was saying. There was discipline and structure set up at my house. And you can see from this photo, these were the things that were allowed at her father's house. You know, where she's acknowledging doing drugs. She's drinking. She's posting stuff about, <laughs> you know, all, you know, various things that indicate the freedoms that she would have and her father's house as opposed to mine. And I believe it was just rewarded behavior for continuing to support the allegations and the, and the lies that he made up. And you can hear these papers shuffling around, but it's you can't love. see it. But the, the pictures that he's sharing are, are, are you know, are pictures of a, a young girl who is um, sort of almost looks like she's living the life of a of a hip-hop star for Instagram or something like that, you know? So, okay, so she was painting a picture. She was able to live a life that she wanted to live, a, you know, sort of... A Unstructured. Flamboyant life, uh, mm -hmm. so, so to speak, mm -hmm. uh, at the expense of staying with her father versus a household of structure. And I think a lot of times when you deal with the addition of the stepfather or stepmother, but primarily the stepfather, there's this disconnect between him and the children. And in our case, that wasn't it. Like, even when I was working here, filming NYC 22, my stepdaughters came up here with their mom. We went on multiple family trips. I was almost blindsided because I loved this child as my own. And that was the hardest part for me to accept, to care about somebody and, you know, look at her as my own, especially, like, in my position. I had heard so many times where, you know, people recommend you don't even date a woman with children. And for me, I'm not the type of person to allow people to dictate what I want to do in my life. Um, I met their mom. We had great chemistry. I loved her. You know, I still love her. We still have a great relationship to this day. As you see, we talk, you know, today. Why don't you just call while we were sitting, getting ready yeah. to go on the air, yeah. Yeah, so we have a great relationship. My son, mom, was actually my co-defendant 
um, her sister, who's her best friend, she also testified and and said on the record in my transcript, my sister's telling a lie. No one believes her. Her story's kept changing, and it's in the transcripts. Um, I understood very little about the law prior to. They never read my Miranda rights. I was falsely arrested at my house without probable cause the night that she lied, you know, and they say, oh, we want to take you down and speak to the investigators. And I was like, well, I'll drive. Oh, no, we'll drive you. And you put me in handcuffs. I said, I said, I'm under arrest. So I need to talk to my attorney. And they said, oh, no, no, you're not under arrest. But you had already arrested me. So that is an arrest without probable cause. So then you violated my Fourth Amendment because you arrested me in my house without probable cause or a warrant. And then I went down to the police station and it was crazy because my manager told me, he's like, house, don't say nothing. I was like, his name Anthony. I was like, Anthony, I, I didn't do nothing. Why would I, you know, I said people, and I was like, black people shouldn't be afraid of the law. You know, I'm paying taxes, a shitload of taxes at this time. So I feel like, look, these people are hired for public safety reassurance. And I was confident, like, and even speaking to the detective. And so that night, my manager said, your house, don't speak to nobody. Don't ever say nothing. And you hear it all the time, don't ever talk to the police. But I'm like, I'm not afraid of police. I'm not afraid of the circumstance or the situation. So I spoke and I got arrested that night. Yeah, so I say that right now in your pocket. I don't care how innocent you are. And even after speaking to lawyers, more innocent people go to prison because of speaking. Whatever you can, they will use against you in court. You can say, I love God. And they're going to say, you're obsessed with God and God made you do some crazy stuff. Prosecutor's job is to prosecute. You know, God made you go push that old lady off a cliff in her wheelchair yep. and throw her crutches down after her. You know yep. what I mean? So, yeah, and that's something I talk about on the podcast a lot mm -hmm. is that if you do get picked up under these type of circumstances. Don't say nothing. You say your name and I want a lawyer. I want a lawyer. That's it. So you end up going to trial. Mm -hmm. Here you go see one of my documents and I'll even let you just read the first sentence. And that's an email that my trial attorney sent to my family immediately following my trial. And if you can just read the first sentence out loud from the email. Okay, so this is um, privileged and confidential email mm -hmm. from your attorney. I'll leave his name out of it unless you tell me differently. And the email says, this was the most horribly biased, corrupt trial you can ever imagine. I mean, you can just stop there. Yeah. That in That's itself, I think, speaks volume for the tone of my conviction. Uh, it sounds like it was, um, it was a pretty big mess. I mean, but what was your experience of that? situation i mean here you are it's three and a half years have gone by presumably mm -hmm. you've gone on with your career mm -hmm. hoping to put this in the rearview mm -hmm. mirror mm -hmm. and then the day comes and you go to trial mm -hmm. and then what's the paint that picture well up until like i said at the time i was promoting my movie and i had like a lot of friends and you know relationships with you know so many people and everybody was like well house why didn't you say something or i honestly felt like the truth would prevail and so I was never, like, even family and friends that were close to me. And it was like everybody, even my father-in-law, Rick, was like, How's you're really calm. Are you, you know, everybody was, like, was wondering, was I taking it too light? And I was like, no, nah, you can't make me. And this was always, Jason, this has always been my mentality. You can't make me guilty of something I didn't do. And so in my mind, going to trial, I was thinking, there's no way 12 logical people with all the evidence and documentation would find me guilty. But then now if you take away all of the evidence, all of the character evidence, all of the character witnesses, you take away everything and clean the table off. Now it's an emotional case. So now you have this young child in the midst of, you know, the Bill Cosby situation and why all this situation where you have these public figures taking advantage of women. And this is like the almost the pinnacle and, you know, 
you know, emotionally, societally, we were feeling a lot of compassion and sympathy toward any woman who made this type of outcry, regardless if it was true or not. It was just the tone of our nation almost at that time. And so you go into a courtroom where you take away every single thing, every piece of paper, evidence, witness that can prove your innocence. And now you have an emotional case. And why was this stuff not allowed into evidence? Hey, they, uh, the judge and the prosecutor suppressed, and I have the suppression letter here where they intentionally put it on record to remove anything remotely that would do anything that would almost dampen her character or show, to me, motive. If you take out the fact that she's allowed to drink, smoke, be around her boyfriend, her boyfriend spending a night, even in the record, on court, the father committed perjury because they asked him, do you allow your daughter to spend a night and have company? So like I'm saying, when there's evidence to prove your innocence and it's not allowed intentionally, and you see that one of the motions to suppress it, and it's another, it's two motions. I'm sitting here looking um, at this document from the Superior Court of Gwinnett where they, in fact, did exactly what you said, but uh, disallowed any testimony says including but not limited to references of alcohol and drug use by her skipping school allegations of domestic violence between her and i guess is that her dad yeah who had who had a history of abuse against her mom and they even had used her custodial interrogation video and mine mysteriously the disc didn't work so the jury never seen my side of that night of your interrogation video. never seen it mm. yeah it looks like it was Almost a fait accompli, I hate to say it. You went through this trial. You knew that they had disallowed a lot of the evidence that would have almost certainly Mm -hmm. led to your acquittal. You still thought you were going to be acquitted, even though you hadn't been allowed to present evidence that was so favorable to your defense. Because there were still things she said on stand that contradicted the truth. And then I actually took the stand. And everything I said was genuine. It was the truth. I recorrected a lot of things that she said wrong, but they didn't know the truth. So it still became an emotional thing. Right. So you were you were done. I mean, done. it was there's, at that point you're you done. really all you're doing is saying I didn't do it. That's it. And the jury's sitting there going, well, oh, I mean, you know. And another thing that happened was the prosecutor, in his open statement, said, "Look, he has all this. He has all. He's a great man. He has a nonprofit. He's doing this stuff for HBCU. He has this amazing career. Everyone thinks he's perfect." And he kept like attacking my character. At one point, he was even referencing my character on Single Ladies. Like, what did he do for a living? What kind of job did Terrence have on Single Ladies? I'm like, what does Single Ladies have to do with this case? So he's attacking your fictitious character. He attacked all anything fictitious that he can attack. He attacked. He was like, what does Terrence Frank do for a living? I was like, man, do you think Robert Downey Jr. leaves Iron Man and think he can fly? It's a profession. Nobody leaves set and think they're that person. I couldn't say nothing. You know, anything rebuttally close to anything other than what they want you to say. And they, they tell you, they ask you questions like that set you up to fail. I mean, his, all his, that's the only thing they had. That's the only thing they referenced to, like what I do on single ladies and some other character. What did he do for a living? Like the two characters that were like somewhat urban. Two or three. He's like, oh, you did music videos and print jabs. He just was just trying to present it to the jury. Like, I thought I was above the law mm. because I was successful or because I was, you know, an entertainer or an actor. And his closing statements, because, you know, it goes the prosecutor, defense, then prosecutor. When he said he wants y'all to believe that he he's such a disciplinarian that, you know, the father just so lenient that she can go over there and just do whatever and she wants. 
that she can't do it at his house, that she would make up accusations. Well, he has all this going on. He said, but the one thing that simply fails logic, where's the proof? Saying that if, what proof do you have that she can do all these things at her father's house versus your house? Right, so what he was referencing was the evidence that he knew wouldn't be allowed in, and he was actually turning that into a negative. Check I mean, the record. Like, yeah, that's uh, pretty... And when he said that, I was like, and I still had hope, because again, when you're innocent, it just never resonated me going to prison. I had done everything at that point in my life to not go to prison. I had did everything I can, degrees, education, speaking out in organizations, having my own nonprofit. Well, you know, even the young lady who had survived cancer and all that stuff in Montgomery, Alabama, uh, who I took to the prom, she came down to testify. Like I had a courtroom full of people and witnesses. All of their testimony was limited to how long do you know him? Do you trust him to tell the truth? And does he have good community standings? That was it. That was all they were allowed to say. They weren't able to say nothing as far as my character interaction with the kids. I st it never, I'm talking about, I'm not saying absolutely never resonated. I guess I was naive. I was in town promoting my movie. My kids were sitting in a rental car. Wait, wait, wait. The kids are sitting in a rental car where? Outside the courthouse? Yeah. My son and mom was in the car with them. Oh, okay. Yeah. So they were sitting in the rental car. And my son and mom was right next to him. They were like playing on their iPads, you know, watching them play in the car, waiting for me. They got the verdict. So I'm thinking I'm about to walk in, not guilty, go celebrate. It's been three and a half years. I'm thinking I'm just walk in and walk back out. I had just bought like lately near season passes. My kids were sitting in the car with swim trunks on. And I was like, hey, I'll be right back. Let me go in here and get this, handle this situation. I never came back out for two years. In the fall of 2008, a sleepy Seattle suburb was shocked by a crime that no one could have expected. A local football star planned a daring bank robbery complete with decoys, disguises, and an outlandish getaway plan. He drew the whole thing up just like a game-winning play on the field and almost got away with it. The sneak follows a twisting story of a once great athlete who committed that crime and how the robbery forever changed the small town where it occurred. Be sure to subscribe to The Sneak on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Anyone who knows me knows I wear glasses all the time. It's like a part of my face. And the thing is, it's so annoying going to a store and trying glasses on and going through that whole process. Warby Parker has solved the problem. I just participated in the home try-on program, and here's what happened. They sent me the glasses. I tried them on in my office, five different pairs. I showed them to my friends. I, you know, looking at other people. What do you think? This, that, the other thing. I look in the mirror. I picked the one that suited me the best, and then I sent back the other four. And here's the thing. The glasses, you're not going to believe this. They start at $95, including prescription lenses. I mean, that's a small fraction of what I'm used to paying. And the lenses include anti-glare and anti-scratch coatings, which is super important to me for obvious reasons. Anyway, the free home try-on program works like this. You order five pairs of glasses and you try them on absolutely free for five days. You can show anyone, and then there's no obligation to buy. The shipping is free. It includes a prepaid return shipping label. So head to warbyparker.com conviction to take the quiz that comes before and then order your free home try-on. And now, 
Introducing Scout by Warby Parker. And Scout is for you people, for everyone that wears contact lenses. And here's the thing. They're comfortable, they're breathable, and they're affordable. They're daily contact lenses. They're made from a super moist material that resists drying for lasting hydration and comfort. It's everything you want from a contact lens. Order a trial pack that includes six days worth of contacts for only $5. Unreal. And then receive $5 off your next Warby Parker order. Learn more. Go to warbyparker.com slash conviction. That's warbyparker.com slash conviction. Try it today. So you went to prison, mm-hmm. and was it a medium, maximum security prison? Medium. Medium yeah. security prison. Mm-hmm. And and was it as bad as, as it sounds? It's, it was bad. I went to a private prison, and uh, down in the south, when you go to certain prison, they say you caught sweet. Um, Because it's not as volatile, it's not as violent. But there was just as much violence, there was just as much drug. Man, there's more drug per quantity in prison than it is on the street. Like, there was no drug that you couldn't get access to, whether it's weed, meth, cocaine, heroin, spice. (laughs) So, you know, that's the frustrating part. As somebody who pays taxes and who cares, I'm looking at the process like, wait, you send all these people to prison and you're basically babysitting grown men. Because you're getting food, you're getting shelter, they give you clothes, soap, you know, certain necessities. But at the same time, there is nothing rehabilitative about the process. They make you take some generic classes that if you want to take, you can take. But I'm looking like, how are you trying to help these individuals? And so now it makes sense that probation, you hear Meek Mills talk about probation, because if there's no rehabilitation, then there's going to be a need for probation because they're going to lock your ass back up. If you're trying to prepare somebody properly you don't worry about it. it's like your kids you don't say you know what i'm gonna give my kids a four-year probationary period for them to go to school to college you know you prepare them up until 18 to go out and be productive and that's not what the penal system is like so you get the private system where you get 36 to 38,000 per inmate 2,800 inmates we're gonna have to get a calculator get out, calculator. But, um Perfect. but whatever it is it's a big number 38,000 times 2,800 what do we got I want you to. Okay, <laughs> you're gonna let me do the honors here. Yeah. This is another first on wrongful conviction. Yeah, we can never use that. a calculator. Thirty-eight thousand times twenty-eight hundred equals. So that's a hundred and six million four hundred thousand dollars. That's a lot of money. Yeah, that's a crazy amount of money. Mm-hmm. I mean, but anyway, <laughs> it's an um, absurd um, amount of money. No, it's, that's it, getting it, paid it, to no, facilitate. No, listen, the very idea that there's a profit motive in locking people up is insane Mm -hmm. right you know there's that there's that horrible movie kids for cash which documented this these cases in uh, 2005 i think it was or seven where these judges in pennsylvania were two judges were locking kids up for talking back to the teacher for Mm -hmm. jaywalking Mm -hmm. for posting one girl Mm -hmm. made a myspace page which she said was a joke just making fun of her teacher not threatening Mm -hmm. Three months in jail. They were being paid by the private prisons to send so kids insane. to jail. Little thirteen-year-olds, fourteen-year-olds, to to like a real prison too. Mm-hmm. This was no. I mean, and they were locking kids up. To I mean, the one kid that haunts me, his name was Charlie. He uh, a lot of them do, but you know, he was sentenced to six months for possession of stolen property. He had a scooter that his parents had given him for a present that they didn't know was stolen, and some other kid had you know. They had bought it in a flea market, whatever uh-huh. the hell they did, right? Uh-huh. 
He had no idea. They had no idea. And they locked him up for six months. And then they keep extending it when you're in there because then the kid ends up smoking the joint in there because, like you said. That's what they do. And if you don't get in trouble in prison, they call it manipulating the system. No, and he, he, this poor kid was in for f- most of his childhood. They managed to extend it and extend it, keep penalizing him for different things. And I think he was only out for a year before his 18th birthday. He got locked up when he was 13. And, you know, it's just, it's so tragic. It's just mm-hmm. so damn tragic. But, and, and, uh, and he did touch on something else I want to talk about, which is incredible, too, because I've been working for, uh, for over two decades. I've been on the board of the Drug Policy Alliance, which is working to, you know, end the drug war, mm-hmm. right? I call it the war against the war on drugs, right? Mm-hmm. And bring some sanity back to that all those crazy policies that we mm-hmm. have in this country. And um, I've gotten to know Tony Papa very well. Mm-hmm. He works there now. And Tony was sentenced to 15 to life for a first offense cocaine charge, nonviolent. Mm-hmm. He was eventually uh, granted clemency by the governor after 12 years. He painted his way out of prison. Mm-hmm. And then uh, he did a self-portrait that ended up in the Whitney. The guy's incredible. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so Tony Papa, as he says... He now does communications work for the Drug Policy Alliance. And as he says, if you can't control the flow of drugs in a maximum security prison, how can you possibly hope to control it in the streets? And it makes perfect sense. But anyway, we don't want to make sense. I'm going to tell you speaking about the war on drugs, I believe it was 1979, don't quote me, but it was somewhere in that time frame that I read. You know what the maximum amount you can get in the United States before the initial war on drugs was set for any amount of drugs? No, tell me. I don't even know. A year. Wow. And then in 82, I believe, Reagan initiated the war on drugs. In 85, all major... No, Nixon started it. Well, Nixon... Nixon started it, yeah. Yeah, yeah every president has taken it to yeah, another level. It, but 85 is when the influx start bombarding inner cities. Like Detroit, the Chicago's crack epidemic took over. No, and Nixon's, you know, his uh, one of his chief aides, uh, Haldeman, I forgot what it, whether he was a chief of staff or whatever, but he has admitted in later years that Nixon didn't want a war on drugs. He wanted a war on black people and hippies, mm-hmm. but he couldn't call it that. And at the time, there was only 2% of American public identified drugs as a problem. Uh, exactly. So he had to create a false crisis, yep. which is what he did, and he declared this war on drugs. Mm-hmm. And even then... The police departments didn't want to arrest people for mm-hmm. drugs, so they created this new incentive mm-hmm. where they would give the police departments All kind extra militaries, ins- tank, like even if, if they even met quota of drug arrests, because yeah. they didn't want to do it. That, yeah. You know, that's yeah. what's crazy. Back then, I think you know you're looking at a situation where police officers were going into the to the law, like I think a vast majority of them do, saying, "I want to protect people." I want to. I grew up thinking, I maybe I want to be a police mm-hmm. officer. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? You see the uniform, you respect it, right? Mm-hmm. It somehow or other got so twisted where, and it's the government's fault mm-hmm. by providing reverse incentives yeah. for persecuting regular mm-hmm. people. Now you have these home invasion raids where they're kicking in the door mm-hmm. and and you know and people are getting shot mm-hmm. and wounded because they're looking for some drugs. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they go to the wrong house. Yep. I mean, there was that horrible case down south, it might have even been Georgia, where they threw in the flashbang grenade and it landed mm-hmm. in the baby's crib. Mm-hmm. And the baby's now had 35 operations mm-hmm. and everything. Else. I mean, it's less, stuff, yep. it's madness, right? Mm-hmm. It's just looking for drugs, mm-hmm. which are going to be legal eventually. I mean, now, you know, weed is on the way, but we still have people serving crazy amounts of time in prison. Well, for have you weed. noticed just the much that have administered drugs are just as harmful, if not more harmful than the non-legalized drugs. But they give it to you in quantity because they control the quantity because they control the output. They can control the money. 
It's all money, man. Yeah, it's all money. I mean, it's listen, all money, baby. I just posted on my Instagram, which, by the way, is at it's Jason Flom for those of you who don't follow me. But I posted on my Instagram today, you know, because of this Manafort thing. I mean, he got sentenced to yeah, Syria. What is white privilege? Paul Manafort, forty-seven months, months. Mm-hmm. for you know so many crimes you can't even count them mm-hmm. over such an extended period of time. Mm-hmm. And then my friend Bernard Noble mm-hmm. was sentenced to thirteen years and four months for possession of two joints. Mm-hmm. Possession? Mm-hmm. What the hell? I mean, mm-hmm. like, my head's exploding. Um, but and he was a truck driver, 47 years old, seven kids. And, you know, he had two prior arrests for simple possession 20-something years earlier. Mm-hmm. He had been clean all this time. Let's get to the uh, to the reversal because, or the mm-hmm. or the ultimate... Um, uh, motion for new trial. Freedom, yeah. Um, so how did you eventually manage to get yourself out of this miserable predicament? That's what I want to know. I had a motion for new trial. I was coerced, pretty much blackmailed into taking what they call the Alfred plea. I have the documents, if you see right here, I have on record multiple times where they try to offer me these pleas. And I'm like, I'm not taking the plea for something I didn't do. I'm not taking the plea. I probably had on record four different times where they say, if you don't take this plea, it's not coming back on the record. So how does this plea keep reappearing? If someone declines a plea, where do you see so many times on record where it resurfaces? And so at the beginning of my motion for new trial, they asked me to take a plea. My trial lawyer got up there and talked about the discrepancies and the things that violated my due process. And so when a motion for new trial is granted, it's, it's based off of something that violated your due process, whether it's ineffective sense of counsel, whether it's prosecutorial, whether it's judicial, for some legal reason that violated your due process, which is your 14th Amendment, um, which is very important for people to understand. You got to understand, you know, and I'm going to say this and be real quick. Martin Luther King's death or his fight, the advocacy for civil rights is superseded just the right to vote. It's for people, individuals to understand as a citizen, you are given these rights to be an American citizen to where you don't have to fight for your rights if you understand what your rights are. See, we are fighting for something that's allocated, that's for us. When you're born an American citizen, you're given these rights. So it's kind of like, you know, you going home and fighting for your bed and it's already your bed. That's your bed. You just have to know it's your bed. So, you know, I say this, especially African-Americans, know your rights, know your amendments. I didn't personally care about mine before prison. But when I went back and I learned my first, my fourth, how important the fourth was, the fifth against self-incrimination, the sixth amendment for uh, legal representation, the seventh, eighth against cruel and harsh punishment, 14th due process. So this was uh, my most for trial was open on the grounds that I didn't get a fair trial and at some point during that process I was basically pressured either do this or sit in prison two more years and at that point I already been there a year and a half so what they offered me was uh, my lawyer told me at the time that I would get uh, time served this thing called first offenders and I would get out and my record would be expunged and you know I didn't even want to take it and I had to call like a removal of courtroom to speak to my mom and my son's mom. They were like all crying. Like, please just get out. Your kids miss you. I'm like, mom, I'm not taking a plea for something I didn't do. And it was like, it's an Alfred plea, which allows you to maintain your innocence. But it says you don't want to go to court. I never mind going to trial. I know I have enough proof to prove my innocence. That was never a case for me. It was never an issue about me not going to trial. So you ultimately accepted the Alfred plea? Yes. And they told me I'd be released then. I wasn't released then. I went back to prison for like eight more months. I've heard that story before, too. Yeah, they said. And then my lawyer was like, oh, yeah, as soon as you get there, they're going to process you out. And it might take up to 30 days. My motion for new trial was November 17th. He said, you may be home before Thanksgiving, no later than Christmas. I didn't get out till July. So I said another eight months. 
And that was July of 2018. So you've been home now for nine months. Yep. It seems like you hit the ground running, though. I mean, I didn't. I thought I did too until I realized coming here helped me realize I didn't. Like my probation, I still have a few years left of probation in uh, Atlanta, and that's what I'm fighting for right now my complete exoneration and um, expungement of my record. Um, uh, but I didn't. I remember I woke up probably right around about Christmas. I woke up just crying, man, just tears. Because the psychological effect that this stuff has on you, it's just mind-boggling. You wake up, and at one point, and it blew my mind, at one point I thought about going back. And nobody in my family, this is my first time even saying that, at one point I thought about going back. Back to prison. That's the psychological effect it has on you. It's kind of like, I don't even know if you watch like Game of Thrones. like couple seasons. Theon Lovejoy, where old boy had broke him to a dog and even if you open they said once you break a dog you can open the cage and the dog won't leave out and that's what prison do and that's why they have these probationary periods because psychologically the impact that it has on you it breaks you and that's the whole purpose of it is to break you and that's why I have my book Never Broken because despite this tragic unfortunate mundane crazy malicious to me situation I feel like there's people that's experienced worse than I have. I know that there are. And I feel like, you know, I have an obligation now with my situation and circumstance to be a voice for prison reform, for the people that's maliciously prosecuted, falsely prosecuted, and understand that, you know, just as many innocent people go to prison as guilty people get off, but it's not a justification. What we have to do is pay more attention to what, you know, our, our judicial system and the people we elect. So I encourage people to be aware of who your judges are, who your all your state representatives are, who all your local representatives are. And that's where the power of voting and being aware of what's going on plays its part. We can get out here and kumbaya and, you know, rally all we want, but we need to put people in office and positions that care about the people. Is there something that is interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? If so, then BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialists in issues including depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, trauma, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. And remember, anything you share is confidential. Now you can get help on your own schedule, at your own pace, and your own time. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions and chat, text with your therapist. If you're not happy with your counselor also, remember this, you can request a new one at any time at no additional charge. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. And for Wrongful Conviction listeners, you can get 10% off your first month with discount code WRONGFUL. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com wrongful. That's betterhelp.com slash wrongful. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor that you'll love. Betterhelp.com slash wrongful. You know, one of the things in doing this show, if you're listening, whether you live in Georgia or Alaska, Mm -hmm. it doesn't really matter. Everybody at some point gets a jury duty notice. Mm Mm-hmm. And when you serve on a jury, which I encourage people to do, mm-hmm. especially people that are listening to my show who are woke, right? Because they're listening to the show. So, you know, if you do get called for jury duty, it's super annoying. 
Like, nobody wants to go. You know, you got to miss out on work and things and whatever. Everybody's busy. Mm-hmm. But go. Because go, go, and, go and then stay woke because when you're there, recognize that there's stuff going on that you don't know and you mm-hmm. can't see. Mm-hmm. We have to become more educated just in general about the judicial process. The jury concept, the way it was founded was, you know, back, I believe, in the early 1300s or something like that, 1400s. It was early. And uh, they were just sentencing guys, just like guilty, guilty. And the guy, one guy said, wait a minute. You guys don't even know me. Like, give me a chance to show you my innocence. Let my peers judge who I am. And so then that's how the jury situation came about. So it's important for you to understand that the whole purpose of the jury duty in the jury selection is for you to recognize this individual as your peer. Is it somebody you want in your community? Is it somebody you trust? The whole purpose of the judicial system is for public reassurance, to make us feel safe, is to know that our government is working adamantly to secure our safety, whether it's offshores or onshores. Of, you know, of American soil. So it's very important for people to understand, like you said, how I know it's boring. I know you don't want to be there. You can't just go in there and say, well, I don't want to be here. Today. I got to go to work tomorrow because this is somebody's life. And then there's that, you know, famous quote that it's better that 100 guilty men should go free than that one innocent should suffer. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm pretty sure that was Benjamin Franklin. Mm-hmm. Or the legendary Supreme Court Justice Learned Hand who Mm -hmm. said that our justice system is haunted by the ghost of the innocent man convicted. Mm -hmm. You know, that that quote gives me chills. Mm -hmm. And yet it happens all day, Mm -hmm. every day, and twice Mm -hmm. on Sunday. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, there's that saying that everyone you meet is fighting a battle you know nothing about. Mm -hmm. So be kind, right? Mm -hmm. And I know so many of the different people that I've interviewed on this show who've been through these horrendous situations. I mean, some of them in prison for 30, 40 years for things they didn't do. And they all have different ways of explaining how they found this mm-hmm. uh, extra gear, this this strength, this, uh, this grace, I call it, right? Mm-hmm. Where they're able to get up every day and, mm-hmm. and, and, and project a, a positive influence onto the world. Mm-hmm. And you certainly seem like that guy as well. Um, you know, and I know I've spoken to you about this before, so I wanted to ask you, and then and then I'll have one more question after this, but are you bitter? No, sir. And, and it's interesting because so many people that I talk to civilians about this issue all the time, people that listen to the show, other people, they say, but I don't understand. How can these, how can anybody who's been through what? Because that's not the answer. Frustration, hate, anger is not the answer. I love the judge. I love my stepdaughter. I love her father. I love the DA, the prosecutor. I even love the jury. If I had to do one thing, I would want to sit down like this and just ask them why. And I would want them to just hang out, just spend one day with me, spend an hour with me, watch me interact with my kids, watch me go to a facility or a place and, you know, car wash and see a young lady with her daughters and watch how I tell my sons to go over there and vacuum that car or go pump that lady's gas or go grab that lady's groceries. Watch how if I'm in a restaurant, I see a lady with kids and I pay for her food. You know, it's so many things that I do that the people who know me immediately will go, man, you're different. It's remarkable. And there's so much to be learned for people who are going through their day-to-day struggles mm-hmm. and may find, uh, you know, aggravations in daily life. Mm-hmm. But, you know what but I mean? But once and- everything is taken from you, especially abruptly, and then you're broken down to the bare minimum, that's why they say some homeless people are the happiest. They have no worries. And so, just to, not to cut you off, but to answer that question, where you say how did each and every one arrive at this same place? Because you've been stripped of everything that the pressures of society that man has. 
So now when you just have the bare you, you just have your connection with God or whatever you believe in. And so the strength in your your relationship with a higher call and a higher being is indicated by how you conduct yourself and how you respond. I know that God has all my steps numbered. And whatever they meant for evil, God meant for good. I wouldn't have been here two years ago. I wouldn't even thought about prison reform two years ago. I would probably be probably with my kids on some island or somewhere kicking it. But my point is this. I've always been aware, but this gave me another fight. You know what I mean? Because I'm, I'm huge on youth advocacy. And that was the hardest part about this allegation against a child. I have history and proof. And I'll show you documents even after we get off air where I'm speaking to young women, young men, empowering them. So that was the hardest part because my degree is in education from Alabama State University. So when you take away my core, which is the love for advocacy for youth and empowering young men and women in low economic environments, that's what hurt. And in fact, that they took me away from my kids. Like the hardest part was walking away and knowing that my kids were outside. You know, certainly meeting you when I did, you know, like I said, it's you still seem like that guy who would be more likely to be on stage accepting an award than then you were to end up in prison. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I guess for me, in, in addition, I think one of the hardest and the craziest situations just being in there, Jay, was the fact that like I would look up and I would see myself on television you know some of the other guys would kind of be looking like you know is that that looks just like you know and when they finally figured it out it was crazy that's totally surreal so you're in prison Mm -hmm. looking at the tv Mm -hmm. seeing yourself mm -hmm. watching your previous life Mm -hmm. literally flashing in front of your eyes Mm -hmm. initially when when i first saw myself atlanta was on and they watched it because it's atlanta Bay show and i'm in georgia you know, a lot of guys have been locked up for so long, they couldn't affiliate me with the character. And then most of them are so negative almost that they don't they wouldn't believe that someone they watched on television would be locked up with them. So that was the first thing. And then when I got to the facility I was at down in Coffee, with this ring came on and one of the uh, officers walked in and was like, hey, GG Building wants you. So I look up and all the dudes in the window like, yo, coach, because they call me coach. They actually call me coach in prison because I used to help a lot of guys with like basketball and boxing and you know with their illegal work because I started doing a lot of legal research and stuff like that so they all started calling me coach but uh, they was like yo coach and then after that it was so much love man like I never had any incidents with gangs or none of that stuff man um you know the the top dogs I was always cool with you know what I mean so uh, I don't know if it's gonna get around but shout out to you know everybody that's right now that's still incarcerated keep your head up man and your time in the sun is coming man but yeah, it'd be crazy, Jay. I see myself in multiple television shows. My movies was airing. And a lot of them, ironically, was happy to be almost locked up with somebody that was successful. And it was crazy because I got so much love and support. So it was, they were all rooting for me to get out. I never hear my story. You know, a lot of times when you go to prison, they tell you, man, you going in on some sex charge, they're going to do blah, 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 blah. But the guys all knew me as a man first. And everyone was frustrated. A lot of inmates was pissed. Like, man, we, man, you got to get out. You got to tell your case. You got to tell your story. I was got so much support and encouragement from the guys in there because they met me, and as a man, they can tell that you know I was innocent. And so, and I, I mean, it was just crazy, man. That, that's just an out, out of body, like, trippy, crazy experience that I, I hope nobody else has to go through. But man, what a what a life! Thank you to all the support I got because I know at one point the distribution company had hesitation about my roles. Like in, say, for instance, Tupac, 
But shout out to Benny Boom and Hutton for supporting me and riding with me by keeping my parts. Shout out to the producers and Donald and all the guys with Atlanta for keeping my parts. Um, shout out to, you know, Tressa, Megamind for continuing to push our project secrets. Shout out to, you know, Robbie Reed and, you know, Tracy and all the people that looked out from BET who initially, you know, as soon as I got out, were trying to put me in projects and working to put me in projects to regain, you know, my, my stature in, in the game. So thank you all for the support and everyone else. And uh, got some real big projects on the way. This has been a, an extraordinary uh, interview. I appreciate you coming in and, and sharing your story um, and everything that you're doing to try to make a difference. I know that this will ultimately work itself out. Mm -hmm. um, I hope it will, um, it will and that everything will get cleared up. Um, and I know the best is yet to come for you, so, you know, I wish you well. You. Um, we have a tradition on wrongful conviction, which is that at the end of the show, my favorite part, I think everybody's favorite part, the producers, <laughs> um, uh -oh. audience, is that... It's going on here, people. I get to... Uh, I get to actually just, uh, like I said, thank you for being here and then turn over for the last uh, brief closing thoughts for anything you want to say okay. about anything. Uh, just love, man. Um, like I said, an event yesterday, well, earlier this week with uh, Andrew, one of the owners at the Red Rooster, and they were doing something for outreach, which is an urban program or for low-income families. There are so many organizations, there's so many groups, there's so many entities or organizations that's trying to put it together i just in closing what i'm trying to say is we have to find a way to unify this you know what i mean because there's a lot of people doing things all across the nation the world and um i think we just got to find a way to unify it um, we need to get past racial barriers uh stigmas and stuff like that um, we need to try to stop pointing a finger like i said i don't have no maliciousness toward anybody i know there's a bigger purpose i just want people to become aware don't just grow, evolve. And growth is a part of the human condition. That's something that naturally we all do. We grow, it's aging. But evolving is when you, as a person, you see stuff, you see the bigger picture, you know what I mean? Like a caterpillar. And I feel like a lot of people just caterpillaring along, but the purpose is to turn into that butterfly. I know it's a slow journey. It feels like the process of being a caterpillar. And it's, you know, whether you're trying to get to this goal, this destiny, this journey, just know that that process is a part of your journey. But the evolution into the butterfly is when you grow as a person and you see that the most important thing that we have, that God has given us, is each other. Everything that was created other, other than the earth was made by man, whether it's the iPhone, whether it's the car, whether it's the bologna sandwich. So God gives us each other to live abundantly happy with one another. But we take it for granted. You know, be more collectively aware of one another and just try to love one another. People say that shit and they be like, oh yeah, love each other sounds great, but that's what it's about, man. So I, I love you. I appreciate you having me. Um, it feels good to kind of get this initially off my chest because I've been holding it out for over two and a half going on three years. If not, actually longer than that because it took three and a half years to go to trial. So like, this is my first time speaking out publicly. Um, I'm grateful that we had the opportunity to meet. You know, thank you, Effie, uh, out in uh, Los Angeles, and they signed. They're also doing phenomenal work at the mayor's office, and it's a lot of prison reform organizations. But at the end of the day, <laughs> what prison reform means is for us to have a society where our judicial system works fairly for all of us. The domino effect of prison reform helps us with health care by taking money out of these prisons and putting them to the health care sector, by taking them out of these prisons and putting them to the educational sector. 
And that's what's most important. So the reason why prison reform is important because we have to be aware of where our tax dollars and where our money is being allocated. You get what I'm saying? So it's deeper than that. It's a domino effect. And the domino effect is love and us educating each other. Understand this. You are your own individual. Don't let no, no entity or individual stop you from doing what you love. It's a wrap. It's Thank a wrap. you, uh, Harold House Moore. Harold House. For being here and sharing your story um, and uh, thank you everyone for listening to Wrongful Conviction we'll see you next week don't forget to give us a fantastic review wherever you get your podcast it really helps and you know I'm a proud donor to the Innocence Project and I really hope you'll join me in supporting this very important cause and in so doing helping to prevent future wrongful convictions it's easy. Go to innocenceproject.org to learn how to donate and get involved. I want to thank our amazing producers, engineers, and editors, Connor Hall and Kevin Wardis. The music in the show is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer, Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction and on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast. Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcasts in association with Signal Company Number no. 1 and PRX. I'm excited to tell you about a new serialized podcast called American Jihadi. If you're into investigative journalism, if you're a news junkie, or if you love great nonfiction storytelling, it's a must listen. American Jihadi tells the incredible true story of the unbelievable relationship between journalist Christoph Putzel and Omar Hamami. Throughout the eight-episode series, Christoph recounts his investigation into the life of Omar, an American-born U.S. citizen who became leader of the Somali Islamist militant group Al-Shabaab, landing him on the list of the FBI's most wanted terrorists. From Omar's hometown in Alabama to war-torn Somalia, Christoph seeks to get answers. Why would a Southern Baptist turn to terrorism? And how close should a journalist get to his source? Listen to American Jihadi, out now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.